Welcome back to Victor E. History Podcast from the History Department at Fort Hay State University, home of Victor E. Tiger. Here at Victor E. History, Dr. Manami Guha and Holly Marquis highlight student, faculty, and alumni research. I'm Holly Marquis. Today, Chelsea Kiefer joins me today to discuss her research, A Mug of Silver and a Pipe of Tea, How the British Use Their Addiction to Tea to Reverse China's Good Fortune. Chelsea, welcome back to Victor E. History. Thank you for having me back. It was so much fun last time, and I'm happy to be here. You were our very first guest on Victory History, so listeners have already been introduced to you. I'd like to start out by asking you why you chose FHSU Online for your history program. So originally, I wanted an online program for the flexibility of the schedule. I wanted to work full time, so I started looking online for state universities that had an online program and found Fort Hayes listed as one that was really affordable. But I picked them because of the classes offered in the history department and the good reviews online. And what has your experience like been as an online student full-time at FHSU? It's a lot better than I expected. I didn't know how involved an online student could be in the school. Even this podcast shows how the school tries to make sure online students have the same experience and opportunities. We also have our own virtual senate clubs, such as the History Club, that allow us to participate. We have Zoom events, and I even flew to Kansas recently to participate in a history conference with other students. I never feel like I'm left out or don't experience the same opportunities. We're actually recording from this conference. (laughs) We're making the most. We have a very fancy setup outside of the hotel bathroom, and we are making it work. Uh, When we last spoke on this podcast, you were talking about your research on Japanese internment, and that's your first big original research paper. But this paper you actually wrote the same semester for your Asian civilizations class. How did you balance those two projects? So when I found out that the Asian Civ class had a research project that well, I was very nervous. And (laughs) I actually remember emailing you and I was like, how am I going to do both these papers? And you were like, try to find a topic that can share sources. So I thought I was going to do that, and then I completely did not do that at all. So what I did was I tried to finish my methods paper earlier in the semester, and then I could just focus on my agents in the last few weeks of the semester. I know from talking to Dylan Schmidt, who's also here for this conference, we talked to him in episode five, that you basically had all of Asian civilization to choose for topic selection. So how did you land on this topic? So Dr. Guha was great about giving us these interesting different readings every week that kind of related to her topics that she talked about. And one just briefly mentioned the Opium Wars. It didn't go into a lot of detail about it, but it sparked my interest. I had heard about them before, didn't know a lot about it. So I wanted to just look into that more and find out more. And I just really found enough that I figured it could be a great topic to write a paper about. Definitely. You start this paper with a discussion of how tea became popular in both China and Britain. I would have thought that tea was always popular in Britain. So the Puritan view on tea really jumped out at me when I was reading this. What did they think about the tea? So I was definitely surprised that tea spread in popularity so slowly in Britain. Puritans in particular were suspicious of the drink and told everyone it was like evil and (laughs) anyone who drank it would be weak and would go to hell. So Then you had like the beer and wine merchants who kind of ran with that superstition and played into it. They were spreading rumors about how bad tea was and how it was evil and unhealthy. But it was all because they were afraid of the competition. So you have to keep in mind at this time, water was rarely clean enough to drink. So before then, beer and wine were really the only liquid consumed before tea came in. Yeah, my students are always surprised to learn about how much beer that the Puritans consumed. Uh, But I will definitely be telling them 
that they were suspicious that tea would make you weak and make you go straight to hell. So <laughs> uh, despite all of these rumors and the suspicions, tea eventually becomes wildly popular in Britain. Yeah, so the fact that everyone drank so much beer was actually one of the reasons tea eventually took off. Before tea, their options were water, which made people sick, beer, wine, which was incredibly weaker than what we drink today, but it still made people drunk if they were consuming it all day, or milk, which was often as dirty as water because they didn't have a way to purify it the way that we do. So everyone in England, you know, it's cold, it's dreary, there's without many ways to warm inside their house. Alcohol gave them a false sense of warmth, but tea actually did help warm people up. It also required boiling the water, which made it a lot safer to consume, and it reduced the amount of drunkenness at work as well. So That's pretty important. And then in times of low food and famine, people could actually add sugar to their tea, which was just a little bit of a calorie boost. So it was like almost like this magical drink to them, and it's easy to see why they eventually got addicted. And where's all this tea coming from? So the tea came from China. China had the tea. Britain had the silver coins that China wanted. So it was like a win-win for everybody. So at first, it sounds like this trade was beneficial to both Britain and China. But what happens to make this relationship no longer mutually beneficial? So China refused to trade for any British goods. They thought there was nothing that the British had or could make that China could not provide for themselves or do better on their own. The only thing they would trade for was for silver, which the British got from the Spanish. Well, when the Spanish entered the American Revolutionary War, their supply of silver started to dry up because they became enemies. So, Yeah, so if they're getting the coins for Spain, and so being at war with Spain is going to be problematic <laughs> in a lot of ways. Exactly. And now the British people were pretty addicted to tea, and the merchants needed to keep a way to keep buying it, to resell it at home. The British were also frustrated that China stayed pretty isolated and only let the merchants that use a few ports, and they never wanted to let any kind of foreigners venture inland into the country. For the British, the answer to the silver problem is easy. We'll just become China's drug dealer. How does that get started? So at this point, they already had India as a colony in their possession, and poppy plants grew pretty readily in India, which were the plants that were turned into opium. Since the British merchants had heavy control over the country, they could export the drug cheaply and bring the drug into China easily. The Chinese had an ample supply of silver from the tea trade, and they were actually using it now to buy the opium. So the British merchants were getting rid of all their silver back, and China was quickly losing their riches. Are the British tapping into an existing market for drugs, or is this something that they introduced to China? So much like tea in Britain, opium spread really slowly in China. The merchants originally bought it over in small, expensive shipments, earning the rich could afford to try it. And some Chinese had actually already heard of opium as it was used as a controlled pain drug in the country. So they knew to avoid it. In fact, many thought that the British were out to kill all the Chinese with the opium. <laughs> and it took multiple shipments to convince people to try it. But once it took off, it spread like wildfire. They eventually could bring it over in larger quantities to sell it for cheaper, which just got more and more people addicted. I mean, there were even small fish marts that started to sell opium, some because they were addicted themselves, some because it seemed like the only thing people would want to buy and what they could make money off of. The addiction spread everywhere, schools, students, teachers, even monks. There was no walk of life that was saved from addiction. And so this is going to be probably problematic for China, having your populace addicted to opium, which makes you want to do very little other than more opium, is is a problem. And what do they do about it? 
So the Chinese government made it illegal to buy or sell opium, but that did not stop the trade. There were even school children addicted to opium. Commissioner Lin, who was put in charge of stopping the opium crisis, eventually wrote a letter to the Queen of England, Queen Victoria, begging her to ban merchants from bringing the drug into China. Did the Queen ever respond to Commissioner Lin's letter? Despite the fact that she banned opium use and trade for her own people, she did not reply to his letter or try to stop her people from selling in China. Commissioner Lin was desperate and decided to make the use of trade of opium in China an executable crime. He considered himself reasonable, though, and he gave Chinese people 18 months to get clean before they faced a death penalty. That seems like an awfully modern approach to addiction for the 1830s. Uh, I mean, not the execution part, but that he understood that getting clean is not going to be quick and easy. Right. I mean, he did not extend the same grace to foreigners, but he really wanted to try to lose as few Chinese people as possible. He even tried to get medical researchers to make a drug to help wean people off their addictions, which I was really surprised by that train of thought. Very modern. He definitely recognized it wasn't easy to get clean, but as far as the merchants, he tried to threaten them with immediate execution if they did not turn over their opium. It didn't work. I mean, some just fled the countries. Other just hired Chinese to deal the drugs in the actual country for them and stayed off land. So they always found ways around his rules. So Commissioner Lin is ultimately unsuccessful in stopping the British despite numerous attempts, and it ends up in all-out warfare. But this is a very one-sided war, right? Yes, absolutely. From the start, the Chinese were afraid to go to war. All the silver they gained in the, tea, in the tea trade was lost to their people, giving it back to those same merchants to now buy opium. They also did not have the expertise on the water that the British had, nor the warships. They were quickly defeated in the first opium war, ended in China having an open, having to open more trading ports to foreigners, as well as losing possession of Hong Kong, which then became this drug processing island. I didn't know that about Hong Kong. I knew it became a possession of the British, but I didn't really know that it becomes their opium headquarters. Me either. So their biggest hurdle in China was the lack of being able to travel freely and that China was so resistant to opening up more trading ports, which caused like a bottleneck effect of all the merchants trying to come to the same spot at the same time. So using Hong Kong to store and process opium helped clear up more space. So it really became this drug central spot. Having this location meant they could deal in more drugs and made it harder for China to stop the trade. China no longer had any authority to try to control um, drugs in Hong Kong since now it was no longer in their possession. And once the British win the war, they can bring all of this opium into China. Tea comes back into play here, actually. So in your paper, you talk about a man named Robert Fortune. Who was he? What does he have to do with tea in China? So even after winning the war, the British still wanted to have full control over both the opium trade and the tree trade. They figured if they could grow the tree in India, which they were in possession of, they could cut out the middleman and not lose any of their profits. So Robert Fortune was a British man who went into China, disguised as a Chinese man, to steal plants and the secrets to growing and processing the tea. It was actually pretty funny because all he did was wear traditional Chinese clothes, sewed a Chinese braid into his hair and hired a few Chinese helpers to act as like his servants. And people were so isolated from foreigners who were banned from coming to the inland that everyone just assumed he was this ugly, weird looking Chinese man. (laughs) So he traveled freely through the country pretty easily. It's so funny that they were just like, man, this dude is ugly. (laughs) At this point, the British are still being China's drug dealer. Now they figured out how to harvest tea and turn a profit. But things are going to be still tense between China and Britain. They go to war again. How does that come about? 
So both sides are really still heavily resentful. The British wanted full trading rights and the Chinese to stop trying to end the opium trade and they wanted more ports open the foreigners so they could trade more easier. The Chinese wanted to end the opium addiction for British merchants to stop interfering in their profits on tea. Eventually, some Chinese attacked an opium ship, which was enough to bring tensions into a second opium war. It really did not go any better for the Chinese. They were already weakened from the first war. Their silver was depleted from the opium trade, and they worried they would not even have enough sober soldiers to fight in a large war. That's something you never really think about. (laughs) Yeah, so the British won even quicker than they did the first time. China ended up having to open up even more trade ports. They had to allow foreigners to move inland into cities that they had never been allowed in before. And one thing that China really didn't want to give up, but they had to, was that the British were allowed to bring in Christian missionaries to travel throughout the country. I thought you did a really nice job in the conclusion of tying everything together. So could you speak a little about how you concluded this paper? Thank you so much. So I circled back to the beginning and I really wanted to highlight how different the tea trade ended up from how anyone could have imagined. So China originally had such an advantage over the British. At the time, it's easy to see how they imagined they could continue to get rich off of selling this tea and not need to compromise because they held all the cards in their hands. They had no idea that their refusal to trade for British goods would be such a large insult to the British that they would ultimately be the destruction of their economy and trade relationships for such a long time. What did you end up having to cut from this paper? I would have loved to add more about Robert Fortune and his adventures and misadventures in China. There was a lot of knowledge there about how China processed tea. He saw parts of China in the tea trade that no British had seen before. He learned that black tea and green tea are made from the same plant. They were just processed differently. I didn't even know that, and I drink tea every day. (laughs) So originally, he thought he was trying to get like a bunch of different types of plants that he would steal and send to India, but there was only one. He also found out at the time that China was actually dyeing green tea that they sold to the British to make it look even more green because that like allured the British and the buying more of it when it was this bright green color. They thought they were getting something special. That seems gross. (laughs) Right. And I also touched on how it was hard to get tea growing in India, but I would have loved to cover more of that. He sent shipment after shipment of plants from China that all died These are super fragile plants, and the British just did not understand how to give them the right conditions and transport to keep them alive. It took years to start to really get good field production in India, and they still really didn't understand how to process them. So eventually, they actually just hired Chinese tea makers to go to India to help produce the tea. And I guess some people felt like if you can't beat them, join them. The economy was so destroyed, they didn't really have a lot of opportunity for other employment. What was your biggest hurdle in this research paper? My biggest hurdle was definitely finding primary sources. Not only are these older than any research I have done before and try to find, but I don't speak Chinese. Right. (laughs) But luckily there were reports from the British side and I was also to find records and letters from the Chinese side that had been translated to English. What sources did you find most helpful in your research? There is a book titled The Opium War Through Chinese Eyes, which really opened up my eyes to the impact that the war had on that country. So much of writing on history is through the British perspective of, and really about the winners normally write the historical records of war. So it was incredibly helpful to read how it impacted China through their own words and their own perspective. Absolutely. What was your biggest takeaway in this project? 
My biggest takeaway was how influential the British was on Chinese history. I did not realize that despite having little freedom to move around inland China from the outside of the port cities, they were able to completely destroy China's economy. The tea um, plant built China up rich and strong, and the poppy plant knocked them down further than they had ever been. It just goes to show that no one knows how or when the tides will change. Was there anything that I didn't ask you that you'd like to add? Um, I would really like to add again that how isolated China was before the opium crisis and wars. They had completely closed themselves off, so they had no modern weapons that the British had access to, nor were they familiar with British culture in any large way. There is another kind of funny story. Multiple times, British representatives actually went into China to talk about buying tea with anything other than just silver to open up more trading ports to the merchants. These trips started in the late 1700s. So this was right after the time that the British lost access to the Spanish silver, which was obviously in the 1770s. So none of these convoys were successful as they all refused to bow down to the Chinese emperors. They never even got to the part of negotiations when ending the opium trade or finding any mutual beneficial trade options. To put it on the timeline, the first opium war started in 1839. So if it was not for these egos of these people who would not just see the Chinese rulers as above them, it could have potentially been resolved decades earlier. Of course, I can't say for sure because who knows what would have happened if the talks actually took place. What's up next for you? So right now, I'm really excited about two summer classes I have coming up, a French history course and a history of sexuality course, which is actually with you. And the sexuality course will complete my women and gender studies certificate here at Fort Hayes, which is really cool. And you're presenting today. I am. Jeffrey's (laughs) interment paper. Are you nervous? A little bit, yeah. (laughs) So we are just ticking all of the boxes today. Uh, Thank you again for visiting with me, being willing to talk about your exciting research. I'm looking forward to following along as you continue to achieve these milestones in your history career. Thank you for so much for having me. This podcast is such a great opportunity for everyone, and I love listening to every episode when they come out. We will post the selected bibliography of sources for those who want to learn more about this topic at our website, victoryhistory.com. That's V-I-C-T-O-R-E history.com. You can subscribe there to get notifications on episode. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at victoryhistory.com. And if you're interested in pursuing a history degree or a history education degree at FHSU online or on campus, you can visit www.fhsu.edu history to learn more.